You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. First off, I'm both happy and I'm and kind of surprised to be here with you. Um, another is as as you know, um, uh, Mark said, another Dharma from is scheduled to speak with you today, but personal emergency rose and it made it impossible for her to be here. So. I think we should take that as an opportunity to acknowledge the uncertainty of our lives from day to day, but from moment to moment. And let us send out our best wishes to all beings who are suddenly unexpectedly found themselves in the realms of suffering and distress. Whatever the causes may be, whatever the conditions may be, let us fervently wish for all beings to be relieved from suffering. And on that note, just today, while I was trying to figure out what to say, uh, I was reading uh, poems by Ryokan, who is a Japanese monk and poet. He, uh, uh, he lived in, uh, he was born in some, Excuse me, I just have to get my glasses here for one sec. He was born in 1758 and he died in 1831. So we're in 2021 and I was born in 1958. And so I'm hoping I have at least the 10 years that he had. But he's quite a famous uh, uh, poet and he wrote something that, that I had not read from him before, and I only found it today. And I found it after uh, reading in the Washington Post that in January, in America, one person had died every 28 seconds from COVID. And that fact was so startling to me and then I read this poem, which is uh, uh, captioned by when his village was wiped out by plague. Ryokan wrote, somehow, somehow forgetting this is the way the world, I was awestruck. I was awestruck to see countless people die fast as the leaves blown away. I was awestruck, awestruck to see countless people die fast as the leaves blown away. It's not just the tenderness of those words that strike me. It's also the knowledge that we have been here before and we will be here again. And we need to understand that as difficult as it is for us to comprehend what it means to see one person die every 28 seconds. It is not incomprehensible either. And we should just acknowledge how impermanent, how transient life is. 
The speaker who is here today is not here because of the intransience of life. And tomorrow we may not be here because of the intransience of life. And one of the very fundamental teachings of the Dharma is to hold this in mind at all times because it changes the way we treat the life that we have, which we have no idea how long it will be or when it will end. It is one o'clock in the morning here in Kyoto, and I'm not usually awake at this hour, but Mark sent me a note describing his problem and asked if I would be willing to help out, and I immediately said yes. And then he sent me a note saying, you realize this is at one o'clock in the morning for you. And I was like, eh, no, I didn't realize that. But I wrote back and I said, yep, yep, for those of you who don't speak Canadian, it's, yeah, that's okay with me. So things were going pretty smoothly. And then Mark sent me another email saying, uh, give me a title that suggests what your talk might be about. And I was like, I have, well, I have yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. And then a few minutes later, this phrase bubbled up for me. And it, it just, it was intuitive. It just said, all my relations. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard this before. I first heard it as a boy when I was growing up on the Canadian prairie. It is, I think, originally Lakota, which is one of the tribes that loosely called the Sioux, which is, I won't get into that, but anyway. It is a term now used by many indigenous people at the beginning of a ritual, a prayer, a dance, a sweat lodge, or any other sacred activity such as storytelling or what we in Zen would call chanting the lineage of our ancestors. Its most basic meaning is obvious and seemingly inescapable. We are all deeply interrelated and interconnected, bound together in visible and invisible ways. And it would be foolish, foolish, and even dangerous to live a life that ignores this way of seeing the world in which we all move and function. This saying, of course, doesn't sound very different from a Buddhist view of emptiness or codependent origination or Inder's net and so on. So it sounds very familiar in a certain kind of way. But there's something more than just familiarity that resonates when I hear this phrase. There's also a sense of family and community. It speaks directly to our mutual responsibility to support and care and show up for each other. It was that sense of family or sangha that inspired me to say yes to the invitation from Mark without hesitation. I didn't think about it. I just said, yeah, sure. I feel in relationship with Maya, who is the woman who is scheduled to speak here today. I feel in relationship with Mark. Mark, as he already mentioned, he and I read Dogen together with a group of other people every week. He supports my practice and I try to support his practice. I also feel in relationship with all of you. 
some of you I've had the pleasure to meet and speak with before. And some of you I'm meeting for the first time. But regardless of that, you are all my relations. If Maya had, didn't have to cancel today, she would be here speaking to you right now. And I would be upstairs sleeping right now. But you would all still be my relations. It just wouldn't be so obvious to us because it would be unseen. But the relationship would still be there. So with that thought, just take a moment to recognize, acknowledge, remember our deep, intimate connection with all beings, visible and invisible, known and unknown, past, present, and future. And if that seems too metaphysical or esoteric, think of the great, great grandparents who you never met. And think of the great, great grandchildren you will never meet. They are all your relations. And at the same time as we acknowledge that, we have to acknowledge with gratitude the many gifts that we all share, beginning with the air we breathe. If COVID has taught nothing to anyone, it has taught all of us something about the air that we breathe. The air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the food that we eat, the land upon which we stand, sit and sleep. In the course of our day-to-day -day living, we often take these many gifts for granted. We forget that all my relations includes not just all beings throughout space and time, but all things throughout space and time. When I was training in a monastic community, one of my main responsibilities was to clean, maintain, and care for the Zendo, which was also our Buddha hall. My other main responsibility was to care for, maintain, and train the temple forms that are common throughout all of our lineage, but are still unique to every different practice center in place. And that's for a whole lot of reasons, but that's the way it is. These two responsibilities became one for me. One informed the other, merged into the other, became the other. Cleaning the temple and bowing became the same thing to me in a very deep way. Now, I'm living in a household in Japan with a wife and an adopted daughter. And instead of teaching forms, I'm learning to read, write, and speak a new language. Instead of cleaning and maintaining a temple, I'm cleaning a house, washing dishes and floors. Is my practice the same or different or both? Whenever I wash the dishes, I have to check in and ask, what is my relationship with this task? Am I approaching this task with gratitude or impatience 
or indifference? Is my mind calm or agitated? Am I putting on a pair of blinders, assuming I know, oh, we're just going to do, do dishes and this is how it's going to be? Or am I entering into an adventure, a teaching opportunity, a learning opportunity, something I have no idea about? I don't always succeed, but I do my best to remember that every cup, spoons, chopstick, pot, ladle, and scraper is imbued with the energy of someone's life. Someone made these things whether they made them by hand or whether they went to a factory makes no difference. Everything I touch is made by someone. Someone's life is in everything. Even though I've never met them, they too are among all my relations and their work deserves to be treated with kindness, honor, and respect. And so it is for every object dusted or sorted used and then put away. When we cease to see objects as merely utensils to accomplish our purposes, but rather as a relationship with someone else's life, we are in accord with all of my relations. Everything matters. Is it so important to live this way? I don't know. But to hold a teacup with two hands and full attention feels different from the experience of holding it in one hand. Check it out for yourself to see how you feel. Returning to a bed at the end of the day that you made up that morning feels different than returning to an unmade bed. To return the book to the shelf, the cup to the cupboard, the cap to the pen, the jacket to the closet, feels better to me than simply leaving all these things scattered about and homeless. It also makes life easier and simpler, and I think a great deal quieter. To see everything that we do, every activity as a relationship unto itself, unto itself, it's just you and what you're doing. It's complete unto itself. Yet it's also connected to every other relationship. To be in the world in such a way, in my opinion, is a very practical way to manifest what Dogen Zenji calls grandmotherly mind. Dogen Zenji asks us to hold three states of mind. Grandmotherly mind, magnanimous mind, and joyous mind. Magnanimous mind is just open mind to get stuck nowhere. Grandmotherly mind is just as it sounds, to treat everything as if you were the grandmother. And joyous mind is just as it sounds, to be joyous. I think if the last year of global pandemic and social people has taught us anything at all, it's we need a lot more, a lot more grandmotherly mind. And I, and I say this particularly to, 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 the, 
to the men, but to everyone. Grand, we need a lot more grandmas in mind. In Japanese, Dogen calls it Roboshin. And Dogen Zenji once went so far as to suggest that without grandmotherly mind, the rest of Buddhism is meaningless. This is not my opinion. This is Dogen. This is Dogen's opinion, at least at one time. Another aspect of all my relations is recognizing that we should only take what is necessary and to use everything we take fully, completely. Suzuki Roshi used to say we should burn ourselves up like a bonfire completely. We should do everything so wholeheartedly we disappear. In Japan, there's a common expression, motainai. As an admonishment from a parent to a child at the dinner table, it might be translated into don't waste food. And there is that. But again, there's something more than that. It's just not don't waste or waste not, want not. Motainai carries within it a sincere gratitude for what we have received. Humility in respect to our own efforts acknowledgement of the transience of all things, and a deep and honest questioning of our behavior in regards to all of the above. If you've ever sat sashin or, or done a zenzenkai where there was oriyoki, and you've done the chant, and you've chanted, we should consider whether our virtue and practice deserve it, you understand one aspect of Moto and I. The other aspect of it is gratitude and also a, a sense of, it's hard to translate, it's not remorse, it's not regret, it's somewhere in between that cloudy feeling that you have when any relationship comes to an end, whether it's with a person or a pet or a company or whatever, there's always this sense somehow that we could have done just a little more or we could have, somehow we could have just made it a little longer, we could have made it a little better, or we could have had something. It's a very, it's just a sense, it's just kind of a feeling that if we had to do it all over again, we do it slightly better. My wife who grew up in a Zen temple and never throws anything away, ever, without holding it to her forehead and saying, Arigatou gozaimasu. And having done that, she carefully places it into the receptacle where it's going to go. In Japan, we have very various different places where different things are, are placed. But before she puts it into the can or the bag or the receptacle, she says, Gomenasai, thank you. I am sorry. Arigatou gozaimasu, Gomenasai. Thank you for what you've given to me. I am sorry to see you go. She does this 
with the most mundane things. A piece of food that, that has gone past its prime or a sweater she's had for 10 years. It's always the same ritual. I've never seen her throw anything away without saying thank you and I'm sorry. These two expressions are the front and back door to our relationship with all our relations. Thank you for all that you have given me. I am sorry. I was not more skilled. I was not more giving. I was not more grateful. I was not more considerate. I could not have used you better. There's a story of a Japanese monk who used these two expressions ceaselessly throughout every day of his life. He was kind of famous for these two expressions because he didn't really say much else. If he bumped into a wall, he would make a show and he would say, thank you. And when he came up, he would make a show again and he would bow and he'd go, I am sorry. And you might think that's funny, and in a certain kind of way it is, but he was also very sincere. Thank you for showing me the boundary of the room. Thank you for holding up my house. Thank you for protecting me from the wind in space. I'm sorry that I clumsily bumped into you. Even though you're just a wall, you must have feelings. You must, somebody must have put their life into you. I should be considerate of you. I should take care of you. Imagine if we could hold this expression sincerely in our hearts during every encounter of our day, gratitude and humility, vow and repentance. Just try this for a whole day and see how it changes your relationship with yourself, your environment, the people you interact with. Thank you, and then I'm sorry. As the story goes, it's so simple, an eight-year-old can understand it, but it's so difficult, an 80-year-old can't master it. Thank you, and I'm sorry. I have at least one student who I know claims this will change your life. Consider it as a practice. When we regard things as our relations, we realize there is no thing, no activity, nothing without value. Morinaga Roshi tells a story from his very first days of training. I've lost my watch for some way about time. Oh, here it is. Uh, from his very first days of training. And he, he was uh, kind of trauma stricken from the he survived the war. He was supposed to be a kamikaze pilot and the war ended just before he went off on his mission. And then the war that he'd been brought up since he was a small child, to think it was a holy sacred thing, was turned into a very bad thing. And he lost all sense of value. He didn't know what to do. And, and so he went to this, you know, Zen monastery and said, ah! 
And the priest said, hey, you can stay here, but you have to do two things. You have to do everything you're told and you just have to believe what I tell you and don't question me. I don't want you to question me. Just take what I tell, take what I say and just believe it. Don't like to believe it, just believe it anyway. It seems slightly unreasonable to a Western mind, and maybe more reasonable to a Japanese mind, but he didn't really care because he was just at wit's end. So he wanted to stay there. So he said, okay. And so Roshi put him immediately to work sweeping the garden. So he wanted to make a really good impression. So he really diligently swept the garden. And he raked the, the whole complex, the yard, and, you know, he raked up you know, leaves had fell and he waked up, you know, it was right after the war. So there were probably weren't any plastic trash bags, but he wait, he raked up, you know, the paper that had been thrown away and the clumps of dirt and the sand and the gravel. And he got this great big pile together and he looked around and everything was like just insanely clean. And he thought, okay, I've done, I've done my best. I've done my best. And he went and he saw his teacher and he said, so where do I throw all this stuff away? You know, I, where do I take the trash? And his teacher just bellowed at him. There's no such thing as trash. And he was like, all kind of freaked out because, you know, it's like he thought he did this really good job and he was like, you know, cooperating, he did his best. And this guy just yelled at him and he was, you know, already traumatized by everything else. He didn't know what to do. He had nowhere else to go. He didn't want to leave. He didn't want to quit on his first day. So he kind of said, he goes, well, so what should I do with the stuff I all waked up? And without even looking at the pile, the teacher said, go to the shed and get like an empty bag from, from get an empty charcoal bag or something and then bring it over here. So he went off to the, you know, found the shed and he found this bag and then he came back. And by the time he came back, his teacher was already on his hands and knees and he'd already shifted through this big pile. And so he like taking the leaves and put them in one place and the rocks and the gravel and he was shifting through the stuff. And he showed up at the bag and he said, really? That's what his teacher said. Like it took so long to get here at the bag and he picked up the leaves and started shoving in the bag. And, you know, Morinaga figured out, well, I should help him. So he started, you know, shoveling leaves in the bag and they're pushing the leaves in and leaves in and leaves in. Morinaga had done a great job. There were a lot of leaves, you know, <laughs> stuffing these leaves in the bag. And he said, okay, teacher said, okay, take the bag and put it back in the shed. We'll use those leaves later to start the fire underneath the bath. So you can consider the implications of that, that there's a bathtub that somebody likes to fire under and then you have to get in the water and you don't get boiled. I mean, I don't even want to go there. But anyway, that's the, that's the, the situation they were in. They needed leaves to start the fire. So he took it to start the bath. So he took the leaves and he put them back in the shed. And then he came back and then his teacher took all the big rocks and he showed him how to put the bigger rocks underneath the drain pipes on the side of the building so that when there was a heavy rain, the water would be dispersed and that the, the water wouldn't create channels and run down and wash everything away. And then he showed him how to take the pebbles and the gravel and put it back in the path. And while he was putting the pebbles and the gravel back into the path, the teacher took the big clumps of dirt and he just walked around and he looked for, find out where there were holes and he would put the you know dirt where there was a hole and he would stomp it down with his foot. And by the end of it, there was nothing left, nothing left of this big pile 
of stuff that he raked up. Nah, it was like it never happened. And his teacher looked at him and said, right from the first in people and things, there is no such thing as trash. There is no such thing as trash. All things are our relations. All things are our relations. Now, this is one of those kind of, to me anyway, heartwarming sense stories that makes you feel good about everything. And so there is no trash. And I hope that you feel that way. I, I, I want you to feel that way. But I want you to hold on to that feeling when you come to something that causes you to feel aversion. Because this is the challenge of practice. When we see something or someone or some ideology that offends us so deeply that we say, I cannot relate. I am, I am not in relationship to that. We have to say all my relations. All my relations. There is no such thing as trash. This is where the rubber meets the road. Thank you. I am sorry. Not, never mind, I am right. <laughs> These are fundamentally different practices. This is the difference between practice and muddling your way through the world. Dogen Zenji gave us very specific instructions on how to behave because he wanted to make our lives better. But the instructions only work if we follow them. We have to see the world as all my relations. We have to see the world as there is no trash. And sometimes that can be quite difficult. We're running out of time. So I, I want to say that I am glad that I have been in a relationship with you in this way today. It was kind of unexpected for me and I know it was kind of unexpected for you. I hope something I've said has been useful to you and that maybe there's something I said that you might want to try and practice. And before I close, I would like to recommend one other practice to you or one other relationship I would encourage you to develop. And that relationship is uh, 
is with words. And I know it is often said in almost even a kind of boastful sort of way, Zen is beyond words and scriptures. But that is not the case for Dogen. And it is not the case for Hakuin. And it was not the case for Iku, nor was it the case for Ryokan. So I would encourage you, if you have an interest in practice, to drink from the, the fountain of the Dharma and to, in whatever way is appropriate for you, in whatever way you can find a way into it, to start to make the foundational texts of our lineage a part of your day-to-day -day life. And by that, I mean the Lotus Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, the Heart Sutra, the Shobogenzo, the Zumonki. Go, go, go look for yourself. Go, go look for yourself. Go, go back to the Pali Canon and do the numerical, the numerical discourses of the Buddha. You know, my, my teacher, Roshi Joan Halifax, always used to say to me, you know, Christians love Jesus, but Buddhists love lists. And in numerical discourses of the Buddha, it's just lists. It's just lists of eight things that are good and eight things that are bad, eight things that are enlightening and eight things that are not. Go check it out, you know. But really, like, go and, go and explore go and explore these things, you know. Uh, as I said, you know, my relationship with Mark is, is in, in some ways, based on the fact that we read Dogen together every week and have done for years and uh, hopefully we'll do for, for years to come. Uh, and it's, it's changed my relationship with Dogen and it's changed my relationship with Mark and with all the people who, who read Dogen with me. And so I started with a poem by Ryokan and I want to end with with a poem by Ryokan. And he's talking about reading the Shobogenzo, which if you're into Soto Zen is, is considered to be, you know, Dogen's key work. I shouldn't say that. Dogen didn't have a key work. Dogen had a life. Shobogenzo is an artifact of Dogen's life. But anyway, Ryokan, I just want oh, I just want to read this to you and and, and and that will be the end. But Ryokan was was reading Dogen. And then he wrote this. I sat alone one dark spring night, already past midnight. So this resonates for me because this is me right now. <laughs> I sat one dark spring night, already past midnight. Rain mixed with some snow poured onto the garden bamboo. I found no means to console myself in that solitary gloom. I reached for the book written at the temple, Ehe. I lit my candle 
and perfumed the air before I opened it. I saw in every word and phrase a precious jewel contained. Now, years ago, when I dwelled in Tamashima as a young man, my former teacher at the temple, Ensu, read the elements of this same book. Already, I had in my heart the deepest respect for the author. I borrowed the book and practiced what I learned from it. And it dawned on me that all of my previous efforts had been a complete waste. So I asked my teacher's permission to leave and he gave it and I set off and I roamed far and I roamed wide. Whatever has brought together this book and myself, I find wherever I am, wherever I range, the teachings are irresistibly true. Teacher after teacher I have sought in my past wanderings, and no one gave me a lash such as I felt from this book. Laws and doctrines I have had many opportunities to study. None convinced me so well as this book on my return to it. We live in an age of mad confusion steeped in ignorance. We can hardly separate priceless jewels from false stones. For 500 years, this book has lain in sleepy dust because no one had the eyes clear enough to see its value. For whom do you think your author wrote down his ideas. Never take me for a cynic, applauding him at your expense. That spring night, I sat and I wept with a light before me till the book on my lap was thoroughly soaked in my tears. The following day, I had a call from the man next door. As soon as he saw the book, he asked me, why is the book so wet? I groped for an answer, for I sincerely wanted to tell him, I wanted to tell him, but all speech failed me. For my heart was so full. And after a short period of bowed silence, I found only this reply. A leak through the roof flooded my books during the night. People have different interpretations. I think this is a love poem to the show again. I think maybe you too could fall in love with the Shovel Genzo.
And in this poem, there are references to the Lotus Sutra, which I think you too could fall in love with the Lotus Sutra. There has never been a time when we have been forced to be so sequestered. When we are, have been forced to like contain ourselves. Nor has there ever been a time when so much has been available to us online. The fact that you guys are all in Chicago about to, you know, have lunch, <laughs> I mean, you know, no. about to go to bed, yet we're together. I mean, it, in Dolphin's time, this would, this is, un, what we're doing is unimaginable. It's like, it is, it is unimaginable for Dolphin to conceive of what we are doing, as it is when people say to me, well, I can't get it. I don't understand how the Lotus Sutra can have like, oh, Buddha worlds upon Buddha worlds. <laughs> It's unimaginable what is available to us. And so I would ask you, to really, the whole point of this talk is to recognize all my relations are all your relations, and that you are related to everything. And to really take the opportunity to recognize the depth and the breadth of that and to drink from it. And that's all I got. <laughs> Genzan. I hope you're around. Genzan, thank you so much for allowing uh, the Dharma rain that um, Ryokan felt fall on us as well. Thank you, my dear friend and teacher. Lovely. She come. So many thanks for coming and giving us such a wonderful talk on such short notice as well. We have time for questions. If anyone has any questions or comments, you just have to unmute yourself. There's no way we can see all the screens. I would love a question. I would take a question like a donation. Let me rephrase that. I would regard a question as a donation. I will ask a question. So at the end of um, his book of poems, um, um, A Narrow Road to Oku, Basho says about parting with his friends that he feels like a clam being separated from the shell. And I always thought that that is about that regret that one feels before parting. So thank you for connecting it all again. And um, I also remember how in one of the commentaries, somebody said that poetically that poem is one of his weaker ones. But I wonder, I wonder whether you know that poem and what did you think of it? I certainly think that Content is still more important than anything. Um, 
you know, Basho is 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 uh, you know this is this is interesting case. You know, um, uh, Shiki, who who without Shiki there would be there would be no there would be no haiku. Shiki single handedly rescued haiku from obscurity, and uh, and and made it and made it what it is. Uh, and and for that we we all we all. Uh, we all owe him gratitude. He was very, Shiki was very skeptical of Basho. He did not think Basho was so great. He thought Basho was very overrated, overrated rather. So, you know, um, uh, I, I leave it to, to, to better recognize poets to, to comment on, on other people's poets. But I will say this about the, the leaving the shell. I think, in my opinion, from my experience in my life, no matter whether a relationship was good or bad, or both, no matter relationship was personal or professional or both, no matter relationship was, was family or friends or whatever, when a relationship ends for me, there is always this sense always the sense that something was left unsaid, that, that I could have expressed myself better. I could have, I could have made that person understand better. And, and I have this even with conversations. I, I, had a, I had a conversation with someone on the phone the other day. And after you know the conversation, I hadn't talked to this person in months and months and months. And after the conversation was over, I felt like, I didn't really listen to what she was saying. I, I didn't give enough attention to what she was saying, I felt. And she didn't, you know, I sent her a note and she didn't feel that way, but I felt that way. I felt that way. And I, and I feel that way most poignantly when someone leaves me. Like when, when someone is passed into the, into the great mystery and I, I have no further opportunity to engage with them, I feel that most desperate. I feel that most significantly. But I feel it all the time because I feel like I never really live up to how well people should be treated. I just, I don't feel capable of treating people as well as they should be treated. And so this is my practice to always try to do a little bit better. And, and, and also I think if you look at the imagery of that, to be the muscle out of the shell is to be so vulnerable. You know, vulnerable almost to, for a muscle to the point of death. Like a hermit crab can go from shell to shell, but a muscle can't do that. But to make yourself so vulnerable, to be so vulnerable, to be so open. If we could all be that way for each other, then so many of our problems would disappear. I think.
Surely you. somebody else has another question. Surely. Don't call me that. Nobody got airplane jokes. Could you say something more about um, not considering people you have um, major differences with, not considering them trash? Yeah, that's, that's um, you know, that has two sides to it. One is easy and one is difficult, right? So the Dalai Lama has often, you know, told people, not to me personally, but he, he said in public, you know, your friends are useless. You're not, you're not going to learn patience from your friends because you like your friends. They don't bother you. You're not going to learn tolerance from your friends because you like what they do. They're with you. They do what you do. You're not going to learn, you know, you're, 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 the people who you have aversion to are the people who are going to teach you patience, compassion, understanding, putting yourself in the other person's shoes. If you and, you and your friend are standing in the same pair of shoes, there's nowhere else for you to put yourself. To put yourself in the other person's shoes that you don't want to be in, that you don't like, that's something different. So from the Dalai Lama's perspective, it's only, I hate to use the word enemy because I don't like that. I don't like to have, propagate the idea that we have enemies. The people you have difficulties with are the people that teach you the things that you need to learn. So there's that aspect of it. That's sort of the, hmm, I don't, the feel good, the feel good part of it. Like we can all understand that and da, 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 da. Then it comes to the things that like, things that we just like violently hate, right? I would like to say that there is nothing that anybody could do that would require, would, that would make me feel that way, but that would be a complete lie because there's a lot, you know, there's lots of behavior by lots of people that I find just to be utterly, totally abhorrent. I'm just gonna say it. It's just my opinion, man, but there are people who, you know, I think are just, their behavior is just, not acceptable. But, but, as much as I feel that viscerally in, in my gut and in my stomach and makes me just react, I have to watch what happens to me during that reaction because that's my relationship. What kind of mind am I manifesting when I give myself over to that? You know? And for me, very often, it's just, Zen is a practice of the body. It's just a chemical reaction. I can feel the adrenaline. I can feel the cortisone. I can feel the brain chemicals just pumping through my heart, making me go, and I go, that's crazy. This is not right view. This is not the view of emptiness. This is not the view of 
Now, I'm not saying that that you know that that having a, a view of, of having a Buddhist view makes everything acceptable. It doesn't, you know. And I can give countless examples of that that my, that my teacher showed me, like how to be so, how to be engaged with the world. You can't just sit on your cushion and go, okay, everything's fine. But you know how 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 to recognize that if you're feeling that way, that that pumped up, that that drugged by your own body, that's what you are. You're drugged by your own body then the other person is feeling that too, right? So you're not like two people engaged in a kind of rational discourse. You're two people engaged in an intoxicated fantasy. And there's no reality to that. There's no reality to that. And until we recognize our own intoxicated, you know, fantasy, we're not able to deal with anybody else's intoxicated fantasy. So it's very easy to go, you're crazy. But that's when you're crazy yourself, you can't that's you can't do that. People do what they do because of their own karmic formations. And people strike out at other people because they're suffering themselves. And I'm not saying that that making other people suffer is okay because you've suffered yourself. I'm just saying we have to acknowledge that. We, we have to acknowledge that. We have to realize that this is karma unfolding and that we are just as capable of being them. We have to see that. We, have to, we, have, we just have to care for the other person. Once we start caring for the other person, instead of like being assaulted by them, the reality changes. And, and this is true in the most abject circumstances. And I can, I can tell you stories of people who were in concentration camps in Germany who, who had that experience, you know, and wrote about that experience. Once we stop that, that's, that's that's how we begin. And it's difficult, you know. I have to be really honest with you. I find people to be very annoying a lot of times. <laughs> and I don't I don't mean in I don't mean in distressful situations. I don't mean, you know, in life and death. I don't mean in like difficult situations. I just mean day to day, just ordinary situations. I find some people I find people sometimes to be very annoying. <laughs> So then I look at it and I go, what is annoying about that person? And then fundamentally comes back to the person is not annoying. My mind is annoying. It's my mind. It's how I perceive. It's how, it's how I encounter things. That's, that's where the annoyance is. It's not the other person that's annoying me. It's me annoying. <laughs> and then I have to say, well, Where, where does the joy in me annoying me? Because I don't want to be annoyed. You know? And that's when you start, you start to deconstruct things, and you start to, you start, and you start realizing that you know, 
That's what I mean. Thank you, and I'm sorry. If you take that as a practice and you just drop, am I right, am I wrong? Have I been injured or have I not been injured? Do I agree or do I not agree? Is this right or is this wrong? If you drop all of that, if you drop the picking and choosing and just look at everything as a teaching, thank you. And everything that you do is not quite as good as you could do. You could do a little bit better. Go in this eye, I'm sorry. The quality of your life changes. Everything else stays the same. All the people are just, it's just as annoying as they were before. <laughs> you can't change anybody but yourself. But if you change yourself, then you change the whole world. That's the, that's, you know. One of my first time teachers said to me, you know, if, if you can't deal with paradox and ambiguity, you have no hope as a Zen student. And that is the most profound teaching I have ever received. <laughs> Does that even remotely answer your question? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sensei, for that wonderful talk. Thank you all for coming. I'm, I'm, I apologize for, for reading off a page. My teacher always told me, if, if you have to read it, you don't mean it. So, but I didn't have very much time to prepare and it was kind of a thing and I didn't want to see something meaningful. Anyway, I hope that, that everybody got something that they could use. And if you didn't, this is my last, this is my last thing. I used to do this. This, I don't know if you can see, this is Hotai by Hakuin. And he is sitting on top of his bag. And in that bag is everything that you need. And so now you have it. So uh, go forth with with that bag full of stuff, and uh, and and just really recognize that you're related to everyone and every. There's no end to your relations. And the Lakota say, "All my relations, they mean everything, everything, everything." And, and when Buddha says, all my relations, he means everything. everything. And so you are so deeply, deeply, deeply resourced to use, you know, modern language. You are so deeply resourced. You have so much available to you and you give so much. Just go forth and just like really, you know, as Dogen says, you know, Dharma blossoms turn Dharma, Dharma blossoms, just blossom and blossom and blossom. And just take care of each other, you know. And I recognize that in Chicago, you know, it's winter. But it's not winter like Saskatoon. So relax. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to me. Take good care. Thank you. Thank you, Genzon. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Genzon. See you, you. Uh, tomorrow. Sleep well. Thank you, Genzon. Bye. Bye. Take care.